As much as I like to fight everyone, yeah, yeah. I'm having a pretty good time here. Why you mad? Why you mad? Why you Why mad? You mad? Hi, Jake. Welcome to our bonus episode. How you doing? Uh, bonus mad I am. I don't know. Uh, hi. How are you? I'm good. We just recorded an episode. It feels weird to artificially create another introduction, but here we are. I know. Now that I'm on, like, toasty, we already talked, we already exchanged stuff, it's going to be great. Um, but today we're going to just go over some of the many amazing emails and DMs and letters that we've gotten from people. Uh, we haven't actually gotten physical letters. That would be cool, though. Somebody should mail us one. <laughs> um... Do you want to start with um, the cancel culture email that you referenced in the last email? Or do you want to start with just like random lighthearted stuff and then we'll get to that? Um, let's start with the lighthearted stuff. Okay. Let's start with this. Would you rather? So Brian via email sent us a nice note where he said he quickly wanted to say that the recent episode with Mike Kaplan kicked ass. So shout out to Mike Kaplan. Um, and he enjoyed the one where Louisa spent almost the whole time dunking on dumb Twitter people who took blacklist, my blacklist seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for getting the joke. Um, but then he says, the question that I have is something of a would you rather. I don't think either option is correct, but maybe I'm wrong. So would you rather... A good joke that perfectly appeals to a specific niche audience or a good joke that perfectly appeals to as broad an audience as possible. Ah. Yeah. Jake, you're the comedian. What do you prefer? Oh, man. That's a tough one. I want to say... <sighs> That's stressful because... <laughs> I, the answer it might be. Like, a, it seems like that's like the eternal dilemma for a comedian, no? Yeah, I, 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 my instinct is just to go. I don't know something in the middle because, like, you would then wouldn't have to face the damning truth on either end of those spectrums, which is that something's wrong if a joke only appeals to one person. Then it's not really a joke, and also if a joke is like appealing to everyone, it's usually you know hack. It, yeah, it's hack. Yeah. It's cheese pizza when you could be eating like fucking mushroom pepperoni, like truffle yeah. pizza or something, you know? Yeah, I agree. That's what you have to try to do, I guess, is go for the middle. But like, um, it's tough because if you're thinking as like a comic who wants to be famous and rich, you probably have to go for the broader thing. Except that now, especially if you want to be a comic who builds an actual following, you probably have to go for the niche. I'll say this. Okay. The the niche thing, mm -hmm. the jo there are jokes that literally only one other person in the universe understands because we uh -huh. just hung out. <laughs> yeah. Those things make you laugh until you are dying, like rolling on the floor. And universal truisms and uh, platitudes and like Oscar Wilde quotes are usually more clever and like you respect <laughs> them and stuff. But it is not the same as like something you both fucking realized when you were on acid or something so maybe i go niche maybe i go team niche here okay i'm gonna go team broad because i'm gonna say that like things like dick jokes and shit fall under broad like yeah. like gross stuff that is seems like not classy and not um cultured or uh layered 
that all falls under broad things. Like most people can laugh at fart jokes and that kind of shit. So I guess I really enjoy like the classic functionality of a broad joke that doesn't require the context of a niche. Yeah. So there you go. We would rather two different things. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, yeah, there is something to that. Like, I've been watching uh, physical comedy a lot lately, and like that's like universally funny. Like a child that can't speak yet can look at it yeah. and like laugh at like the Three Stooges or whatever hitting each other with a ladder or something. Absolutely. And, like, and also, you know, another thing is spend all your time as a comedian trying to make niche jokes because you can, you know, get your little Patreon audience to laugh or whatever, and you focus on these hyper specific things or whatever. But then, like sometimes the things that do make you gut laugh are the universal stupid things. Yeah. Like, um, me and Kate have just been talking about diarrhea at each other in between working <laughs> all day. And like, it's so stupid. It's the dumbest fucking thing yeah. ever. But like, we're yeah, both comedians. Like, our job is yeah. to sit around and construct fucking jokes that are about things. When I'm blown yeah. off steam, diarrhea is very funny. Like, one of the, j- we were going to film a, a fucking, uh, like a sketch that's just like, the premise was just prestige TV, but it's about mm-hmm. diarrhea. So it's just like <laughs> a fucking really sexy intro with the music and stuff. And then it's like a guy lighting a match, you know, because he's in a bathroom yeah. and stuff. I'm like, I love you it. know, I had an ex who like vomiting or even just gagging was the funniest thing on earth. To him. <laughs> and like to this day, every time I see it, I just can't stop laughing because I picture <laughs> him losing his shit over like gagging. And the thing is that it it went everywhere, every way from like, or every level from like uh, Monty Python. I don't know if you remember the sketch for Mon- Monty Python, where it's like a very fat guy at a restaurant. Oh God, he, yeah. Like ate that everything, sh- and, and then he's like, uh, so "Waffer thin, one more waffer thin." <laughs> and then he has the waffer thin at the end of the meal, and he just fucking starts puking all over everything. <laughs> well, my boyfriend at the time just laughed for like an hour straight. <laughs> the second thing, and it's like. Okay, it's so stupid. There's no intellectual fucking angle to it. Uh, But like, how can you be mad at people just love it? Like full on having this reaction to something that you made. Like, man, that's amazing. That's amazing. If it's just like puke based or fucking dick based or whatever it is. Um, I understand it's not classy or refined, but... I can't imagine uh, the pride or the feeling that must come from making somebody just like lose their shit in such a way from just bringing up poop <laughs> or like vomit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this question is one of those like Rubik's Cube things. You just turn over yeah. and over and over and you're like, I don't know where it starts, where it ends. It's comedy totally. somewhere. Totally. Because even as like a regular non-comic person, uh, when you make a reference to a very obscure thing and then like two people get it, that shit feels wonderful. Like you're like, ah, oh, you're my people. <laughs> you get it, and you're with me on this thing. Yeah. So, I guess I'm gonna change my answer to both. <laughs> I read this book one time about uh, comedy writing or something, and somebody from The Simpsons said that they tried, mm-hmm. they did that a lot. They hid references in the show, but whenever they did it, they always tried to couple it with something that's really universal, like we're talking mm-hmm. about. And I think the thing in the writers' room, the rule was. A joke should be something that, like, if there's three people on the couch, one of them is 10, one of them is 30, and one of them is, like, 100, all three of them should be laughing at it for different reasons, which is, like, the way a Simpsons joke works. Yeah, totally. And that's fucking hard and deep. 
Holy shit, that's what you should aspire to. Let's do yeah. it. Yeah. Okay, so that's our answer, Brian. You got it. Both uh, at the same time, actually. That might be it. <laughs> yeah, both at the same time is the way to do it. Uh, let's see. Okay, so for next one, we're going to do some DMs, shout outs, comments, corrections. Let's see. So Rory wrote to us about some COVID-related madness. Um, she said that she works at Whole Foods and she's been a ca- cashier for the last few weeks. After listening to the episode on Why You Mad, uh, she was thinking about the protocol in the grocery store and realized that she is no longer just a cashier, but also a teacher of the new social order. So she has to teach people things like how you stand in line and buy your groceries as part of social etiquette and stuff that we never think about because it's just embedded. Um, So now that it all has to change at once, she's the person in the position of telling people what the new social rules are when they go to the supermarket. Um, And that made her think about how we talk about the anthropology of the West and like how we have to think about how things are changing as we're watching them. Um, I don't know. What's it, do you have any comment on that? Um, yeah, I guess I thought it was kind of interesting because, um, I don't know. Let me see if I can pull that up. Uh, well, you know what I think is interesting in terms of like the last episode that we talked about Hannah Gatsby, I do think it is this thing of like, um, when people have to suddenly, pick up the role of teaching everyone else how to behave in the new social situation. And I think that's something that comics have to deal with very often. Like, okay, picture when um, comedy clubs reopen or venues reopen and it's at 25% capacity and people have to be seated at like a certain distance and they have to wear masks. And, you know, um, audiences already do things that violate comic space and, um, you know, where they will like, talk back too loudly or like walk up to the stage and reach for things and uh so I do think that part of the comedy job is what Rory is talking about here where you have to like teach people how to behave in a certain space right yeah this is making me think about another question actually that's in this mailbag Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is someone sent us an article about um waste and uh the jobs of cleaning things and how historically they sort of landed in uh being filled by women of color for various reasons and how there's like a barrier between white women that used to do those jobs and then the sort of outsourcing and like bringing back from colonial era shit of uh of women of color from those places and how it, it's just a really interesting long essay. What is a uh, Kate Terry sent us that um, mm-hmm. it's uh, kind of referencing a couple of different things, but it's like, it's talking about like this, this realm that people are relegated to and how the answer to this question, I guess of uh, who does this, this job is answered with a hierarchical thing and it could be answered with like a communal thing where we all do it. Um, it's making me, this is making me think about parasite a lot because Mm -hmm. in parasite there was the child in the rich family and like everyone in that family, his parents were just like, it's him. He's the star of the show. Like he's the star of life. He gets to be a little Indian, you know, warrior. He's play role play this little thing. Now he's the Western learning stuff or whatever. And like, 
that movie's interesting because it's about all the power structure and stuff that exists over here, but it's it's all in an Asian country, so it's devoid of the racial conversation because there's no hierarchy of race in the movie. But in America, there for sure is yeah. a hierarchy of race, and like that little kid getting to be, you know, someone who goes and plays cowboys and Indians and shit, while someone else their entire life is devoted to being in the shadows and making sure that the stage is set for him to do that is what women of color are in America or mm-hmm. whatever. So like this work you're doing, if you're also like a, guy, a person who's working in a fucking grocery store right now is you will not be compensated for it. And you are yeah. doing something analogous, I guess, to like taking out waste and all this stuff. I mean, you're, you're dealing with the byproduct of a pandemic, which is worsened by the fact that our fucking stupid society isn't set up the way it should be. And, um, you know, you, you will not reap the benefit of this fucking thing. So it's, I don't know, it's kind of tragic, but also, you know, when they call you a hero, they're, they're not entirely wrong. They're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like you are, but it's just, you're doing a big social service. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. You've seen all the videos, um, that have surfaced of like people getting shamed, out of supermarkets because they're not wearing masks and then yeah. like all, all the all the other people yell at them until they leave and it's like uh something that connects to this but also to the idea of shame being useful of what we were talking about in the last episode like um shame as a tool for shaping social behaviors that are acceptable and unacceptable has been around since probably the dawn of humanity and so being mad at things like cancel culture doesn't really make sense because it's just like another extension of that same function in the same way that Rory in Whole Foods, she is shaming people into like, you're supposed to be standing farther apart (laughs) and you're supposed to be wearing a mask and and it's shame based. It's just that she has to be the agent who walks up to people directly and says like, you can't stand here (laughs) and you have to wear a mask and you have to not touch that. And so she's doing the social labor of readjusting practices, which is a thankless job, as you said. And it's, I mean, you have our thanks. I don't know. That's tough. Yeah, the people that would complain about this sort of stuff that just think, "Well, I've never, I've never been inconvenienced, therefore I should never be inconvenienced," are the little kid in Parasite who are, mm-hmm. they don't realize that like that's not a real life you're living. I mean, it is as much as it exists. If you died while you were being pampered yeah. like that your entire life, you would never know all these other things connected to the idea that you were being pampered. That you would never understand what you were standing on top of. But. um or but, do you know that I read, um, maybe this isn't like, directly related to this email, but to Parasite, um, I fell into like a little bit of a deep hole for um, Native American criticism of Parasite. Did you read any of that? No. What's that? Yeah. So it was like uh, Native film critics wrote about the fact that like most of us, I will admit I did, and I think most of us did, um, in the West who wrote responses or criticisms of parasite we missed the native american thing with the kid that you're talking about yeah in the sense that like what the director was putting in there was the fact that um this kid was the representation of um objectifying another culture as a form of status marker right in the sense that 
for them, Native American as an identity was like literally a thing you order from Amazon that is a caricature that you play upon because they only know it as like Hollywood, Western, spaghetti Western thing that has no actual relation to the lived experiences of Native Americans, which actually mirrors exactly what's happening with this rich family who subsists and exists with the support of the lower classes that they do not actually acknowledge as real people with real experiences. Right. Yeah. So that was the racial commentary in the film was the fact that there was this entire objectification of an identity within parasite, which we all missed dude. We yeah. all missed it because that is the nature of America. We have objectified the Native American identity. We have the Redskins as a football team. We have, you know, like all this stuff that um, was, I guess I would say is like Bon Jung who's our critique of Americans and we fucking missed it. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I like missed that entirely. No, you got you, it. You talked about it a little bit. I for sure missed it. I remember like noticing it, but it did like it did go by the wayside. Like I was way more obsessed with the class stuff. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah, and I didn't. I couldn't. I articulate it the way you just did. Like I couldn't really wrap my head around it. I was like, "What are they just drawing a parallel to the subjugation of?" But I didn't yeah, yeah. draw. You know what? You're right though. I didn't get as far as to understand that it. They weren't just talking about like the oppression. They were talking about the commodification. Commodification of it, exactly. Yes. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah, well, credit to that what, person. Yeah, totally. Well, it was native people watching it through their experience, and really, um, the point being, like, it was Bong Jong whose projection of what happens, what will happen to the lower classes as more distance and more time comes, is you will become commodified as like a cool, cute thing. Like even when you say things like, let's say like hot topic and like ripped pants and shit like that, <laughs> like yeah. that's all commodification of not being a higher class. You know what I mean? So right. it was extremely insightful and had me thinking for a long time. I don't know. Go around, yeah. go out and find some native American criticism of film. <laughs> you know, what's interesting about that. There are sports teams called like the Redskins and the Braves mm -hmm. and shit. There are also a bunch of them called like the, Steelers and the Packers and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Working you do kind of, mm -hmm. yeah, you kind of get commodified. Yep, absolutely. Uh, but they should okay. update them. They should be like the content creators, like the Philadelphia, <laughs> the freelancers, <so> influencers, <laughs> and shit. Really Post COVID, we should redo all the mascots and make yeah, them. Yeah, it'll be like the know. Nebraska nurses and <laughs> they would be america's team for sure because everyone would be like all yeah. oh, the heroes you know and then there would yeah, be like yeah. the gig workers i guess i like it some teachers the texas teachers um okay cool so that was from rory about covid stuff <laughs> there's one um, team that's the virus <laughs> <That'd be> badass <laughs> yeah like the raiders yeah um Thank you for uh, Rory for writing to us. Sorry that you're mad, but I hope you're not. You're less <laughs> mad now. Uh, Parks and Rex. Let's see. We had uh, Beatnik Trash on Twitter was the person who suggested to us that we watch Parks and Rex reunion. Parks and Rec reunion. So thanks for that. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks. Karen, I hated it. 
<laughs> I know, right? <laughs> um, Tarantino. We had a guy on Twitter named Omar who DM'd us after the episode where I talked about Tarantino being the same as Kevin Smith. <laughs> and he wanted us to know that Tarantino is not elitist. He just watched a lot of movies. He didn't go to grad uh, to film school. Is that true? I The story I heard about him, and this is entirely, you know, secondhand hearsay or whatever, yeah. is that... A- I think his origin story is that he was the annoying guy at like a blockbuster who would, mm-hmm. when you checked out <laughs> movies, go like, wow, you're going to watch that or whatever, because he had watched every fucking movie <laughs> in the store, which is a working class job and also yeah. very cool origin. Amazing. I'd buy it. I, I There's things I don't like about him, but I'm not going to chalk that up to he's rich. Like he very well could be. You know. Okay, well, this is our official podcast retraction. Um, <laughs> I w- well, you know, you could, you don't have to go to film school to try to like aspire to the elitist levels of creating an art form. He could totally be a working class guy who aspired to be yeah. a working class guy, but he also could be a counter to it in the sense that like the Hollywood machine that he sort of counters is something that stands on the shoulders of giants without referencing them. And then all he does is reference them and go like, fuck you guys. I am a film school nerd. You are, you know, people that are just trying to make the next Avengers movie or whatever. Could be. I don't know. That's a really good point. I officially apologize. And I want to be clear that I do think Tarantino is better than the Avengers movies. (laughs) For sure. Uh, I like him. He's kind of like Hannah Gadsby. Everything he makes is all over the place, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe not an exact (laughs) parallel, but like... I, when I go into a fucking Tarantino movie, I it, I'm like excited and I'm aware it could be fucking terrible or it could be fucking awesome, but I'm not like Burned I want my money back. Of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're like I came here to watch this. This is exactly what I got. I got the thing I paid for. Um, the next one was this guy. I forget his name. I didn't write it down. I'm sorry, but there was a guy that was so mad at me about the Judeo-Christian time thing <laughs> because yeah, because okay, he's right. This is my official apology. So his thing, he's a Jewish guy. And what he wanted to point out is that it was inaccurate of me to refer to this progressive linear time framework as Judeo-Christian time. Because it's actually based on the original sin myth, which is a Christian myth. It is not Jewish. So he is correct that the entire form of approaching time as though it starts with like an origin point and ends in apocalypse comes directly from a Christian myth. I will say in my defense or the defense of the academics who taught me this, I think that the reason that they labeled it Judeo-Christian time is because the origin story for Christianity is based on a Jewish origin story. So they were trying to not decouple Christianity from Judaism because in the academic sense, we do consider them to be a similar tradition that came from the same place. However, the lived reality is that those people experience and believe different things and that Jewish people were not burdened with original sin and don't necessarily have the concept of time of being a linear progression from uh origin to apocalypse so for those nerds out there who got that (laughs) that's my apology (laughs) i guess okay that makes kind of sense to me because if i'm following it correctly christians because they came after and as a result and described their own origin story as being part of judaism yeah they considered themselves coupled and intrinsically linked 
but it doesn't go both ways because the the band that came before the fucking fusion Didn't super pick band up after their is, shit. right yeah, that make no sense. They're still just the thing they were. Exactly, exactly. So they didn't pick up the interpretation that then. And then the problem is, and this guy tried to make this point, is like uh, colonialism and like imperialist expansion was driven by Christianity, not by Judaism. So the fact that this idea spread across the world and became an oppressive idea that defines our lives is rooted in Christianity, not in Judeo-Christianity or in Judaism. So, to be fair, I should have called it Christian time. Christian and time. Christian that sounds time. Sounds much nicer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Although you know, the the Judeo-Christian thing that actually, <laughs> as a phrase, uh-huh. became way more popular than it ever was during like the uh, Bush era when we were starting to go to war and stuff like that. Like this idea yeah. of Judeo-Christian values. I think they use it to kind of galvanize to, to couple like, the Israel shit with us. Yes, exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, and I think there's a little bit of um, the opposite feeling from the person who wrote to us, which is to want to decouple um, theoretical ideas that came from Christianity from the theoretical idea version that comes from Judaism. Like, it's almost like um, if we think of the rhizome, it's like the idea split off from this Jewish branch, but then everything that happened along that branch is no longer related to Judaism. It's a Christian thing that was spread by colonialism. And right. so this is the person being like, hey, this Jewish branch <laughs> it does not want to take responsibility for this. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, fine. So there you go. You got my full correction and apology. Moving on to the next one. <laughs> uh, let's see. The next guy wants to talk about Stuart Lee. Let's see. This is Blake on Twitter. He writes, am I crazy or is Stuart Lee just not as well known as I think he is? He's been a leftist for his entire career and he's a comic genius, but I never hear any leftists talk about him. Y'all should try to get him on an episode. I think this is a failing on my part because as a comedy person, I Stuart Lee has been referenced to me a million times as someone like, oh, you would totally like this person. I think me the block too. there is that I... So I'm not so amenable to fucking British comedy. Like it, I'm just a fucking American stand-up, and totally. uh, I have watched him before, and I think my attention span started to get away from me, and I didn't really check into it. But I believe these people. If people know me and they know, and then they like yeah. him, I'm pretty sure I would like him because, you know, I think when I was younger, people told me like, oh, he's like a Stanhope, Bill Hicks, or whatever type person, and I think what I. Yeah. Right, but leftist. And I think what I didn't understand is that what they were saying was he is like, um, he's influenced by those things and is a progression past them because he okay. seems to be like a, um, like, like a stand, like a hold out fucking figure surrounded by people that, you know, are, are not, uh, amenable to those ideas or whatever. And uh, I don't know that, like, to be true. This is a guess I'm taking or whatever. But yeah, the reason I said this is because the one thing I do know about him and that I did watch and that made me laugh a lot is that he had a video go kind of viral that he made, which is like a sketch. And the sketch is a mockumentary about a Bill Hicks-type character. So he's really making fun of the mythologization of uh, comedians. Probably put mytho- myth, whatever. Um, we get it. The but action it's, it's... version of mythol- mythology. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, 
but it's it's him playing like this Bill Hicks type guy or whatever. And the documentary is like VH1 behind the music. Like, oh, and then he went out there and he would always do this classic bit. And the joke of the, the documentary is that it's filmed so seriously. But the bit they keep referencing is just him going, um, what are uh, what are what are mice? Those are just gay rats, right? That's the entire bit. It's like the dumbest joke of all time. <laughs> But it's referenced over and over and over again as if they're referencing, like, Bill Hicks doing the fucking JFK thing or whatever. Like, the big, you know, jokes that change society. And so there's something implicit in it that's really funny, which is, like, it's making fun of the idea that jokes change society and stuff like that, which I, you know, I agree with or whatever. Um, I thought it was really funny. We should find a special and watch it because uh, Blake's... uh, I've actually seen Stuart Lee live at JFL. Uh, and I thought he was funny. I remember enjoying it, but I can't claim to be familiar with his voice or his like career. And uh, Blake's message really made me feel like, oh shit, am I fucking America centric? And I, <laughs> I totally am. I'm, mo- <laughs> I'm mostly New York centric. I only pay attention to other things because I'm interested in the migratory patterns. Um, but. Um, it really made me realize like maybe this is my next project is go into um, exploring more British comedy and more uh, international comedy in general which I'm familiar with but uh, not to the level that I could be I guess so maybe we'll do an episode on that soon we'll see yeah Uh, I'm into it I'm genuinely curious yeah yeah we should check it out Uh, somebody else wants us to watch Unbreakable and Split I think I mentioned it on one episode. Um, have you seen either, either of those? No. They're M. Night Shyamalan movies. Yeah, I've heard Unbreakable was good. It is. And Split is really good, especially because I personally didn't really realize that it was a sequel or like related to Unbreakable, but it is. And what is interesting about both of them, we should watch both of them and then talk about it because... Um, kind of similar to Tarantino and to Kevin Smith, what it does is talk about the trope of the superhero, but it starts with it as it like a regular person and uh, what makes you different from the others and what you have to do with those skills. Um, yeah, I think it it's actually pretty related to comedy, so we should probably watch that. I'm gonna I'm gonna make a note. Um, next thing is. Shout out to someone named Ben D, who was the one who told us to watch Mark Marin's End Times Fun. Hope you like the episode. And then we have an email from La Parca. You remember him? He is the one who prefers to be addressed as a Mexican wrestler. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember the yeah. question they put last time, though. Um, I don't know. He's written us before. But this time he wanted to write about Midnight Gospel. And he wrote a really long thing about ha- about magical realism. So Yeah, I thought this was really interesting. Yeah, it was really interesting. Um, I guess I'm just going to have to read it. So he said, I saw you all tweet about Midnight Gospel, and I just watched the episode Annihilation of Joy, which, if you already listened to the episode, was my favorite episode. It's the one I brought up. And he says, um, and I feel like Trippy has been cornered by white people. <laughs> Totally. <laughs> yeah, he says, uh, yes, magical realism was brought about by us Latins, but the kooky, wacky, and surreal has been ma- has been the realm of others, apparently. So he says, I fucking love Julio Torres, but before him we had Simon Rich, and I pray I don't have to know what was said about Julio Torres before he got on SNL. 
Simon Rich was the son of a prominent New Yorker. So the worst that was said about him was that he got where he was because of his connections and because he's funny and more importantly, considered funny by many people he can dismiss. Um, he would love to hear us do an episode about what is accepted as cool in the mainstream in parentheses white <laughs> after it was fringe specifically for brown people man that is <laughs> such a good question because that's a what? thing that also happens in like i've talked about this a lot but in film like yeah. in like genres like specific genre genres like horror and comedy mm-hmm. and stuff like that there's stuff that is taboo like as a or not taboo but like uh not a considered worthy of like yeah. the academy or whatever like like a good example is practical effects were pioneered a lot of the times in horror because it was considered like a risk worth taking and then later on a practical effect that some horror director figured out would get integrated into a dramatic film that then won picture of the year or whatever was nominated right (laughs) so there's like an assimilation of things given the hierarchy of like well what is considered important or worthwhile or sacred or whatever and that happens with what I think this person is talking about in uh, terms of um uh, the, the 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 white you know hegemonic fucking mainstream culture in America and this relates a little bit I think to another question that someone sent us which was about uh, someone linked to an article about this economic crash that put a bunch of actors and shit out of work in like the mm-hmm. late 1800s which led to vaudeville uh, basically right. because all of these actors that had jobs suddenly were out of work. And so that they had to, uh, they were in a very similar situation that we are in now. Right. Which is you got to figure out how to evolve or sink in the tar pit. And so if your job doesn't exist anymore, if you can't go, you know, be part of some fucking playhouse or whatever, what they did back then was get on the trains. And instead of doing 10 shows in the same town mm-hmm. you live in, you rode the fucking trains and you could afford to be novel 10 times over because you're in different towns. And that led to this traveling performer thing, which then led to like vaudeville and stuff. And uh, I think it's like kind of interesting because it's kind of analogous to like the internet right now. Like this yeah, is neo vaudeville, baby. This is the fucking train hopping culture. You got to figure out how to adapt to that. But also totally. because... Commedia dell'arte is something that was uh, kind of traditional in these caravans that existed in like Mexico at the time. And as this person, I read this email, this person pointed out that the Commedia dell'arte that was like acceptable within Latin circles like that eventually became some of the foundational like structure. Yeah, El Chavo, all that stuff. Yeah, but it Mm became like a lot of those like big um archetype things within that became the foundation that like a lot of american sitcoms are based on and you would mm-hmm. never westerners fucking white people americans would never watch seinfeld and go this is based on clown shit from uh-huh. france that mexican people did and then it got sucked through vaudeville up into you know america like new yorker american culture yeah. but that's where that shit came from it didn't come out of thin air you know at least absolutely the te- like the tendency to think about things that way came from there well okay so this guy in la parka he says um <laughs> something that's interesting he goes largely good for white people for discovering ways to expand their consciousness <laughs> but didn't people indigenous to these parts do that for centuries before netflix came about Ooh. Boom. Yeah. And that I think is the point is like um, there's a lot like 
there's something to be said about midnight gospel and things like this using things like uh, magical realism to talk about like these expansions of consciousness when um, there have been brown traditions of art that have already done this in the past or that are doing this in the present and like have i ever brought up jane the virgin on the show i don't think i, don't I have i don't know uh you know what show that is or no no it's a wb show <laughs> uh that i really recommend that everybody watches especially latino people especially intergenerational or intercultural people because um so it's like Jake, it's so funny. Have you ever seen Que Pasa USA? Or you never saw that? No. No? Que Pasa USA was the show in like the 90s. I think it might have even started in the 80s. There was like a public access show that was about a Cuban family where um, some of the characters spoke Spanish, some of them spoke English, some of them spoke Spanglish. And so like it showed this like intergenerational, interracial Latin family situation, but presented it like without fucking um captions and without any like translation this is just how they live like they speak this like milieu of mixed up languages right and that was obviously like a niche thing where only like the latinos who watched it watched it (laughs) um but then we get jane the virgin which was a wv wb like mainstream big show that was one of the biggest shows on wb and it starred uh what's her face who's like now one of the famous latin women who we've talked about before because she sometimes says inappropriate things about race because latinos are not good at this (laughs) um you know what I mean. Whatever. It doesn't matter. But the show itself, it's like um, the premise of it is that it doesn't like the premise doesn't even matter. It doesn't fucking matter. The point of it is that the way that the show is presented is this like amalgam of Latin American and North American styles of creating TV or creating art. So, for example, they have a very like telenovela kind of plot line where there's like evil twins and <laughs> like uh, amnesia and accidental um it, impregnations by like a doctor and like all this stuff that's just like super drama to the extreme in the way that we're used to in telenovelas right but then it has American characteristics of how TV is presented, of like text message bubbles and um, foreshadowing and the what what do you call that when you like go back in a dream sequence or whatever? Yeah. Like all these um, technical tools that are regularly used in American TV also appear. Right. And then at the same time, they use uh, magical realism, which means like there are scenes where the main character like basically goes off into like a fantasy land where they just like imagine all of the shit happens but the viewer you think it's happening until at the end they reveal that it wasn't it was just her imagination so it is this show that very perfectly brings in these different traditions of intersectionality right of like you can tell that the writers and the characters are people who exist in an intersection of these different cultures and these different ways of telling stories and to me, that is a successful way of showing this tradition of like Latin ways to tell stories or like brown ways or other ways to tell stories as opposed to something like Midnight Gospel or, you know, there are others where 
it is a white person being like, here's everything I learned from brown cultures and brown spirituality and brown ideas. And now I will put it into this thing um, that is kind of problematic, right? Like we do have to admit it's uh, like a sterilized kind of uh, version of these ideas, especially when like something like magical realism, um, you know, I don't know if the people listening have like all uh, read or watched magical realism, but it is in the way that I said stand up is an American art form. Magical realism is a Latin American art form. It was invented by Latin Americans and it came, in my opinion, from this existence in a world where you exist between two worlds, like your real private personal world and then the public world that dominates. And so the only way for artists for over 100 years in Latin American cultures to express oppression and uh, doubt and hate and anger was through magical realism because they didn't have the power to outright directly criticize the systems that were oppressing them. They would create fantastical versions of uh, them criticizing the dominant power structures. You know, that's what Borges did. That's what uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez did. And now we're seeing it kind of incorporated into American art forms you know where they like do this thing of like you're tripping <laughs> and it was <laughs> and um and i get la parka's message here where it's like this thing where it's not being acknowledged that this form of expression of existing between realities came from a very specific experience of oppression and now it's just being used as this like stylistic format that gets white people on netflix <laughs> I, I have so much to say about this. Oh, please go ahead. Okay, first off, right off the bat, uh, Julio Torres is extremely fun. I also so watched him and went, "Holy shit! This person is doing magical realism and comedy. Yes. What a cool fucking thing!" Right? Yeah. I don't know Julio at all. We've been on a few shows together, and then this person got rich and famous, and I'm so fucking glad. I'm yeah. like, this is a genuine case of like, I just saw a thing. It was like, good, good for that person. Good, That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> I also, you know, who knows what this person is even like. Um, man, a friend of mine has a funny story about, <laughs> I, this is a bonus <laughs> episode. It doesn't matter. A friend of mine has a funny story about asking Julio Torres to watch his cat while he's out of town. And then <laughs> Julio just went, oh, no, 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 no. no, no. no. <laughs> <Like that. laughs> it's so funny. He like did it in character. It's wonderful. Right. Uh, cool person. But also, you know what, though? Might be one of those people we've talked about before, which is this sort of like, you know, worked and one-upped their way into the bougie, RT yeah. like um, absurdist part of comedy and is not like doing comedy as a salt of the earth Bruce Springsteen type they're doing this specific thing so there's a lot going on there and uh ultimately though totally for it um I will say this about the uh, uh midnight gospel which is that maybe this is just on my mind because I've been doing like tarot shit lately as like a side thing like oh, I've been doing like, it works really well on streaming now that we're all doing streaming stuff um I like tarot. I think it's like really fun because it isn't entirely not like supernatural. It's just symbols and conversations and stuff like that. And it's also not like an ancient 
piece of wisdom that's come, you know, from millions of years of whatever, like it's presented. So the history of tarot, if you don't really, if you don't know it, is that it's just this card game that rich people used to play. Literally, like the cards that we know as like the playing cards, like that deck, the suits are the same suits as tarot. They're just morphed a little bit. So like spades turn into swords and pentacles turn into to diamonds and... um what are the other ones? Hearts turn into cups because cups hold fluid, and so do hearts. They hold your blood. Uh, one other. Uh, clubs, wands. Okay, so um, they just came from the same source, right? But Aleister Crowley and Madame Blavatsky and all these people that were capitalizing on this idea of creating this, you know, weird spiritualism era, like psychic ghost story shit, were selling that shit to rich people. So mm-hmm. tarot cards used to be this thing that... Were, were understood not to be supernatural. They were a fun way for rich people to sit around and have a conversation because they were bored and they, you know, yeah. bored people patronized the arts yeah. and stuff like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the... It was exactly the, like the rich people now being like crystals. Exactly. It was just like Brooklyn City witches and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And the Fool is the first card of the tarot deck, right? And like, it's one of those things that like a lot of people misunderstand what I think the meaning is. It's not, it doesn't just mean a stupid person. It's actually the reason it's the first card of the tarot deck is because it's this like ridiculous person with no knowledge and they're going on an adventure and the adventure is the narration of the cards throughout the rest of the deck. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. And so it like, you think of the tarot deck as the fool starting out and then meeting the devil and then meeting the chariot and meeting all this other stuff. Right. And I think that's what Duncan thinks of himself. I, and I think that that's why it's a, it, it's, it's good. Passable. Yeah, why it's good. Yeah. He co- he approaches this stuff with an air of like uh I have no not, idea what's going on. Not, yeah, not the the discoverer. Like he's not the Christopher Columbus who's taking credit for these things. He's the like passenger who's lucky enough to encounter these ideas. Yeah. Or Maybe he accidentally is the Christopher Columbus, but I bet if you, because he's going on a psychic journey and not a physical yeah. one, I bet if you told him this, he would think it was the most interesting thing in the world. Like he would be into it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we you know, they try to get him on the show and talk about I it. I would totally fucking do I'll it. Ta- I'll ask. We'll see. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but you're not wrong, which is that the way that like California fucking trippy, you know, I take DMT and I also work in tech guys, Mm-hmm. interpret all this stuff is completely sterilized and commodified and devoid of devoid of its original meaning and they like fetishize the fucking people that originated this stuff which is why i think the tarot is like an interesting kind of analogy here because like pe- a lot of people are really into tarot cards and they think that they are this mystical like sacred scary thing that has magic powers and what they don't realize is the people that actually propagated them knew that they weren't, but they knew that they had more meaning because they aren't meaningful because it's all you do is project onto them like a Rorschach test. Um, they, they're not sacred. There is something that like white people do where they actually are kind of racist when they talk to you, like you are sacred, your culture, all this (laughs) stuff, you know, like (laughs) culture is, you know, it's meant to be taken kind of non-seriously and kind of, it's, it's fun, you know, fun is the, the blood that moves through all of us that keeps us connected to each other or whatever. Um, and I think that, you know, we're not far from a thing that Parka is describing here, which is you could, you could pay correct homage and they did it on the Simpsons. There's an episode of the Simpsons where Homer takes, he accidentally eats a crazy chili. I love that episode. Yeah. But did you know that it's all just Lorca, right? Yeah. It's all references to, to Lorca. Yeah. It's like, 
you know, a deliberate thing. And it's really cool that they did that. That's exactly what you're describing in this. Like you're describing these sitcoms where they integrate a bunch of stuff rather than erasing. Right. Yeah. That's exactly. cool. Um, I wanted to ask you in regards to this. Have you ever heard of Broso? El Payaso Tenebroso? No. Okay. What so he he's um, a Mexican like pundit who's also a clown. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. No, tell me more. I kind of discovered him a couple years ago when I was reading about uh, their president when he like was getting elected and shit because they kind of had like a Bernie-ish guy get elected, but it's like, uh-huh. you know, eh, it's all over the place. Um, he didn't cause a socialist revolution. And, uh, you know, this this guy AMLO was running for president. And he was... The, the environment in Mexican politics, from what I understand, is very much about, like, uh, corruption. And he was kind of running against, you know, against the establishment, and he actually won. And um, one central figure in this whole story was this guy who, like, did what Mexican TV was for a long time, which was you had a clown and, like, you know, these weird... <laughs> yeah hot women and the weird vaudeville narratives about it and stuff and I, so I was reading about it and i was like what the fuck is that like i i am american and <laughs> i grew up you know Dude, listen there's have you ever heard of a show called la cama con porcel no do you remember the show no it's like sabro gigante and shit no man a la cama con porcel is a show that like scarred my psyche because <laughs> I had never really seen anything like it before it. And that, so like I had never seen American late night TV before I saw this show. Yeah. And, and this show was like, I don't remember what country it's from, but obviously it's from a Latin country. And it was this like old fat guy named Porcel. And what he would do is like invite his guests to join him in bed where (laughs) where he would interview them on this stage in a bed where he was with like two to five other like hot women, you know, like just like so like picture like the Playboy Mansion kind of situation, yeah, yeah, with, like yeah. an old fat guy. And then he would be like, "Here's an actor. He'll join <laughs> us in bed." <laughs> and then it would be like the the host and the actor and three hot ladies and like bunny ears. And then he would just ask them uh, double entendre suggestive <laughs> questions. Yeah. And, and it was this variety show and then it would cut to like a dance by all the hot ladies and then the next thing would be like a band plays a little song and then there would be another guest in the bed and this was the comedy version this is what existed in latin america as comedy before stand-up got there was like these right. variety shows where yeah. it was just like a host that was a character and did this fucking weird shit yeah well so this broso guy is kind of like He's one of those guys, mm-hmm. but he progressed, I think, and he went past that to, he took that, which is directly descended from the caravan stuff, did it, and then he started getting meta with it, and it was, like, really <laughs> into it, and he thought, like, oh, I can make, like, interesting propaganda about, like, cool, like, you know, ways to live your life better and be, like, more communal and stuff through this clown show, and then he straight up turned it into a thing where, like, the gimmick is that he wears a suit, but he still has the clown head on and shit, and he's, like, a <laughs> political pundit. He's a corporate and clown now. <laughs> dude, when AMLO got... Uh, fuck it, the whole reason that I learned about this is because, like, I hadn't watched Mexican TV for a long time because, like, you know, why, like, you why don't would live I? in Mexico. <laughs> yeah. Well, I also don't watch TV. Like, I don't watch local yeah. TV and shit. And um, he... 
Amo got elected and I was watching some clips from it and like they're just interviewing like um what's his face the fucking big journalist from there uh, his name's escaping me but there's like a you know a bunch of big liberal journalists that are even well known in the US and you know and then all the pundits on TV and the camera panned and there's a guy with fucking green hair and clown makeup and he's like well the situation is you know and he's speaking very seriously and I was like what the fuck is this like how did that happen right yeah. and it's very funny to me because you know, I grew up American, but understanding a little bit more than Americans understood about that stuff. But like on The Simpsons, the Bumblebee joke guy was still so funny to me <laughs> because it was about the gap, yeah, like an understanding. Absolutely. Like, why the fuck is Mexican TV like this? I don't fucking get yeah. it, you know, but I think I get it now. I think this guy is doing meta shit with it because he understood that, um, he was able to subvert a little bit by being a comedic character. Yeah. And like they called him the John Stewart of Mexico for a long time. Probably still do. And he actually got involved in some weird political scandals and stuff. It is pretty funny, though, to frame John Stewart as a clown. Yeah, no, it's funny. But he is, re- though. Right. But <laughs> yeah. here's, what I'm, here's what I'm getting at, yeah. right? He literally is. Him and John Stewart yeah. are the same. Because what happened is, I think, that there was this... Comedia dell'arte vaudevillian caravan shit that is the root of all this stuff and then it went in one direction in mexico and it went in another direction in the u.s and it did interplay off each other like the, uh, the u.s stood on the shoulders of some of the stuff that was developed via something like mexico but i remember in my life thinking like looking at what's going on in mexican tv and thinking these people haven't caught up to what we're doing up here. And this was a bad thought that I had. It was a missed fucking firing of a thing. I was like, oh, this is like the world is linear or it's hierarchical or it's what the fucking uh, uh, um, transcendent, you know, it goes upward and these people aren't caught up. What I didn't realize is these two things share a common ancestor, but they went off in different directions and they choose to synthesize with each other, you know, in certain ways or in certain ways not. And so, like, there, there isn't going to be, like, I remember there was an article I read that was like, there's a Mexican show that's basically like The Office, and, like, they're getting, you know, to our same level or whatever, mm. but it's not a linear thing like that. That's that relativism shit that I was saying to you before, that that's not how things work. There right. is not a progressive line al- amongst, uh, uh, along which some of us are farther along than others. We, it's a rhizome. Everybody can grow in, in right. different ways. They might be similar, but are unconnected. But progression is a fucking, it's a construct of liberalism. Yeah. And I mean, like, the Bumblebee guy thing is funny because it's, like, making us think about this gap where we're like, I don't understand what's happening over there. But presumably something is happening in the opposite direction, you Mm -hmm. know? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe not exactly in a mirror because, like, we're so hegemonic or whatever that, like, everyone has to be familiar with all parts of American culture or whatever. But, like, there's probably a reaction to that happening somewhere. And I think, um, I don't know. I mean, I guess this all made me think about, like, the question that's being asked here because like uh integration could be totally more possible if we understood that if you weren't so patronizing i guess about you know what's happening on the other end of this because that's what kind of netflix sells you know we're the pinnacle just because we sell the most and control everything i guess but if you think about it from the other side it's like um that window of like being more palatable you know like Yes, you know, these like ideas existed in brown and black cultures before uh, someone like Duncan Trussell was like, I'll make a show about it on Netflix. 
But the reality is there's like a bunch of people who, let's say white people, who are not, they wouldn't have had access or impetus to access these ideas without a white, I don't know, ambassador to carry them through it. And so, I don't know, like sometimes you have to weigh the importance of ideas spraying, uh, spraying, <laughs> spreading um, against the importance of maintaining the original source credit, you know, like, uh, because he brings up like Elvis and like the stealing of rock and roll and all this stuff. And it's like, absolutely. We have to figure out a way that there is still like a connection to recognizing the origin sources of ideas and art forms. But we have to accept that that is decoupled from the spread of ideas and art forms like they can spread without acknowledging their source and i don't i'm not exactly a hundred percent sure that they shouldn't spread if they are not crediting their source okay i have something that connects to that but i have to take a piss so hard and it's okay. connects to the no lose and shit okay <laughs> okay go pee. all right okay Okay. I'm back. Go. Do. What was your connection? Okay, so this question of like, um, you know, whether we owe it to give complete credit to the origins of anything culturally is something. I mean, if you think about that, it's like, well, you can't go. Eventually, it's all one big soup, and mm -hmm. you know, it's important to pay respects to people and stuff, sure, but like the point of this shit eventually is to like let it go and let it live a life of its own and you're going to die and it still goes and stuff and lives in this constant register or whatever. And it kind of um, made me think about, so somebody else sent us a, um, a piece on Guattari and Deleuze who worked together. You know, we've talked about Deleuze a lot because he's the originator of the rhizome thing, yeah. but he worked with another guy Guattari, who was um, Deleuze is obviously a philosopher, and the Guattari is like a psychoanalyst, and they were both kind of like leftists and Marxists in France, but they were witnessing mm -hmm. Stalin happen, and they were kind of um, really, really against the bureaucratic hierarchical shit that like hierarchical stuff that was happening with the Soviet Union at the time, post World War II and yeah. shit, and they kind of fused Freudian shit and Marxist shit into this thing where they were very decentralized and very into like um, uh, renouncing the concept of the individual as this thing that transcends and all this stuff. And so they were like what's talked about in Exiting the Vampire Castle, very anti-identitarian because they were very anti-individualist. And so I guess this is, I'm relating this back to the the question of like you know are we um crediting enough people in these situations where something gets sucked up into american culture and it came from somewhere else by referencing i guess what they the way they looked at it which was there is no one like it's only yeah. the group you know so if we lived in some sort of like uh I guess a situation that wasn't so materialistically like rewarding or not rewarding of their individual people in terms of whether they invented something and got the copyright or whatever, it wouldn't fucking matter. Well, I would say it's not just materialistic. It's because you're right, whether you got the copyright and you got paid for it, right, is what matters. But also, um, 
the race and class structure of America um, makes that a problem because it becomes another way to take power and value away from cultures that are considered um, sub or like not the main thing. Yeah. So, you know, it's I, like I would say to you, like black people who want to be like rock and roll was actually invented by black people. I don't think they're coming from that, from a materialist point of view where they're like all the money that was ever made from rock and roll should come to us. I think they're coming to it from a like cultural value point of view of like, you should acknowledge the fact that our culture also brings value and produces content and art for this culture and this society, as opposed to pretending like it had no value up until the point where white people started making it. Sure. And I, I think maybe like that's what La Park is getting at. And I think that's the pro and like, but, but it also goes back to the thing that we talked about at the beginning about like the niche joke versus the broad audience joke, right? Like, um brown cultures have been talking about the stuff that midnight gospel has been talking about for a long time but they've been talking about it for a niche audience right they were talking about it for just them their own people hearing it and so then you have to think about like now if it gets picked up to be part of the broader culture isn't that what you wanted for the ideas to spread the problematic thing is that broader equals white right and that's not what it should be broader should be just like available to all (laughs) but (laughs) the way that our society works is like broad means a white person made it palatable and packaged it for you and it's unfortunate that's why i brought up jane the virgin because it is a thing that's being produced by latinos and uh packaged almost like palatably for white people (laughs) you know as opposed to being like packaged palatably by white people for others it's like a way of showing all these like brown traditions of telling stories and replicating narratives packaged in a way that white people will be like this is so entertaining and cute (laughs) we also like it you know um so i think it goes both ways it goes both ways in the sense of like brown people figure out ways to make shit more palatable for white people in the same way that white people figure out ways to make brown shit more palatable for white people. The problem is that doesn't work in the other direction. There's nobody working towards like serving brown or black audiences other than brown or black content producers. Yeah. I guess um, something I'm kind of thinking about in regards to this though is like, what is the purpose of this art and stuff though because Deleuze and Guattari talk about the multiplicity of voices as Mm -hmm. an idea that is a better way of understanding the truth not as a better way of creating a product that like sells well or something like that Mm -hmm. so like they criticize Freud for being too individualistic because like all he's doing is interviewing people individually and talking about these maladies that are the byproducts of the system and then addressing the maladies and trying to find an origin point for them. And like, what's the point of that? It doesn't address the whole fucking system that right. only finds that person's individual truth, which is like fine, but it's not you, but like it's the pointless. collective truth, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And then I guess he has this interesting like way of uh, flipping the whole thing over and criticizing Marx too, though, for like being too uh, materialistic system, yeah. and, and not understanding that like, not everything is this specific materialist 
um, you know, downward oppression or whatever. And, you know, part of what they talk about is this multiplicity of voices thing is just simply... Uh, they're these are like fucking really hard to read like uh, psychedelic re- like avant-garde fucking uh philosophers but boil it down i mean they, they include different identities and stuff but not in an individualistic way which is kind of paradoxical so they talk about uh applying marxism but including the concept of like women and household labor and marx does not yeah. really like Mm-hmm. get he doesn't really understand he has a gender blind spot absolutely and he doesn't understand yeah. that a, a lot of the essential labor that goes into society is mm-hmm. not just the factory stuff it's all this other shit that the doesn't cause labor. like yeah. because it, because it didn't cause changing of dollars and hands but it was there every single time throughout history so it was very foundational so it was still part of the material power structure or whatever Mm -hmm. and that ties back into that person that was talking about the um look at jake being a feminist (laughs) (laughs) um that ties back i'm just doing it so people will like being (laughs) in sex with me uh (laughs) sign up for our patreon (laughs) yeah yeah. no 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 but (laughs) it ties back into what that person was saying who wrote us about being a grocery store worker because Mm -hmm. it's uh, that's still paid but it's like well it's one step removed in the same way that fucking household work was one step removed and also um whoever sent us that article about the uh like the 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 displacement of just like care work and waste Mm -hmm. uh, work or whatever um all that stuff is a thing that you know Marx didn't really account for as much Mm -hmm. because he considered it well if it's outside of the direct economy well then I don't I only understand the fucking and laundry a thing I have been threatening to talk about for many episodes (laughs) the history of laundry across classes and countries and cultures is um it's a big deal it's a it's labor that has existed for thousands of years of like maintaining your access to clean clothing that is extremely class and gender divided and still affects us to this day and that Marx never addressed. Thank you. <laughs> um, I guess what I'm trying to do is connect the multiplicity of voices thing and the the Freud-Marx mashup of Deleuze and Guattari to mm-hmm. this question of, um, you know, what's going on with the Midnight Gospel and it not really including all these voices um god i'm losing my train of thought here but it's uh so they conceived deleuze and guattari conceived of things that benefit society like art or like the hospital that guattari worked in as being better understood as communities without the individual space than they did you know, as the way Freud saw it as, as like the, the individualistic thing or the way hospitals work in general, which is just like there's a doctor, it's his job, he fixes you. So what Guattari's hospital that he worked at was like a public hospital and like the, the doctors also did janitor shit and stuff like that. And yeah. the patients also did. And yeah. they were trying to annihilate, I think, this like this paradigm that we forced upon ourselves, which is to view everything through the individualistic lens because you can get that out of your own head and then realize you're just part of this like big fucking blob or whatever. And you have a collective desire. It was like a big one, big one of their things. Um, 
so Freud was obsessed with desire, right? But he was obsessed with the individual desire, and they thought more, well, the individual person's desire is just like a fuck. They're they're understanding of the bigger. Yeah, yeah, and so. I guess I'm trying to conceive of like something like the midnight gospel as being kind of like that blob and not something that does just benefit one person, but it does just benefit one person, doesn't it? I mean, it does because he's the one getting the paycheck and stuff, but like, I mean, I don't know. And then it's like, um, we talked about when we talked about the show that there were people whose criticism was like, Oh, but this is like one oh one philosophy, right? Like this is like, uh, nothing, deeper new is being shown here but the people who are saying that are people who are coming from a point of view of like you already studied philosophy and you already studied like other cultures and their fucking philosophical leanings but dude you know what it's like there's a lot of people who didn't and this will be their first exposure and so this it is this broad like it's that broad versus niche thing again where it's like you can try to keep it fucking original and private and like just to the fucking original people that it was meant to be broadcast to. But then that keeps your idea from proceeding in the rest of society versus like there has to be a way for the idea to enter mainstream society. And most of the time it has to be, or I don't want to say has to be, but it has been a white or mainstream person who has already achieved mainstream appeal, bringing it in as though it is their own or as though they're discovering. And I will say that for Midnight Gospel, I don't think that Duncan's attitude was like, I am discovering this or I'm like bringing this to you. It was very much like a supplicant attitude of like, yeah. I'm here to learn from you people who are here to speak with me. Yeah, the problem the is that a lot of his guests, yeah, but then the, a lot of his guests were white people elucidating on brown theory yeah you you could have gotten brown people to talk to you about brown theory (laughs) yeah i mean i think it's a perfectly good criticism and it's an interesting uh, question of like why that happened um one thing i will say though we're talking about the people that that kind of threw the whole thing out altogether this is also addressed in exiting the vampire castle i forgot to mention this but there's another section in exiting the vampire castle where he talks about not just the vampire castle, but this other phenomenon of the left, which he calls neo-anarchism, which is just simply put, like, the people that are so academic about leftist shit and about, you know, the specifics, you know, oh, I've seen, I, he, he's doing 101 stuff. Well, I've read fucking 10, fucking 10, you know, every class in this thing or whatever, that they're kind of functionally useless because no one knows the fuck they're talking about. <laughs> and they kind of hold that sacred like a hipster or whatever. And that, that doesn't affect the communal thing that we're all building that anyone learns off of. And so this was instrumental at the beginning of like the Bernie bro fucking lefty, you know, uh, democratic socialist movement. Because a big, a big criticism of the electoral process and even of having somebody like Bernie Sanders from the get-go was it'll never happen. It can only happen yeah. if it's fucking pure. And you go, well, you can be... A fucking anarcho syndicalist. You'll be the only one, and then it won't function, right? Uh, there's three of us. <laughs> <laughs> so, I guess with something like the um, the Midnight Gospel, that's where I would kind of come from and go. I totally get what the limits of this thing are. I'm glad it exists 
rather than it doesn't exist, though, because otherwise exactly. no one would get these ideas at all. And, you know, the thing to do here, if you want to address this problem, is talk to people and go, hey, did you like the Midnight Gospel? Did you know that the shit he was actually talking about came from somewhere else? And then go yeah. from there, you know? One-on-one. I totally agree. 100% agree. And And it's the way that I try to think of, like, I don't know, honestly, rock and roll, stand-up comedy, all these things that, like, have been now replicated or appropriated by other places and other peoples, like, at least the idea is spreading, and then once it has spread and has a hold in people's hearts, then there will be more people open to hearing about where the actual origin of this thing was. Um, But that puts it on all of us to want to have these conversations with people, right? And bore the shit out of them and have awful first dates. I'm doing my part. I don't know what you guys are doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's close it up with this one. Um, for Well, we have one more, but for everybody else that we didn't cover, the next episode is going to cover all the people who sent us homework, is the way that I labeled it, where we have to read articles or watch things. Um, and it might just turn out into we will make a whole episode out of your thing. So continue to email us at uh, whyyoumadpod at gmail.com or DM us. We try to catch everything. And you'll hear it in a future episode. But for the last one, this is the one I wanted to throw at you, Jake, is um, what I'm calling socialism for working class adults, (laughs) which is uh, (laughs) I received a voice message on Instagram. Did you know you can get voice messages on Instagram? I didn't. (laughs) No idea. Now I do. Count on a boomer to reveal to you fucking functionalities that you did not know social media had. (laughs) Um, So as I mentioned to you before, we have a lot of um, listeners named Steve Latin last name. One of these is a Steve or Esteban who has been listening to the show from the beginning and he emails me or DMs me sometimes to talk about stuff. But this last one, he sent me a voicemail or voice message and um, it was really meant for you. (laughs) (laughs) But he is not in contact with you, so he sent it to me. So this is what he said. He said... I often argue with Jake out loud while I'm driving and listening because he's a Bernie bro (laughs) and I'm trying to understand all the parts of his political shit. And as a working dude, I don't understand how after like 30, the people who support Bernie continue. You know, once you are a parent, once you are in the system, once you're doing all the adult things, I just don't understand if it makes sense. Okay. And what I can tell you about this guy that I know is like, um, so he's like a... Latin mid 40s dude who is a working class dude. He works for um, uh, what do you call it? Like city maintenance and um, garbage and all that stuff. Sanitation. Sanitation. Thank you. That's the word I was thinking. Um, In Arizona, I believe. And um, he's a wonderful dude who's like been listening to the show for a long time. He's the one that sent me a Clorox wipes and Clorox spray in the mail (laughs) because I was not able to get it in New York. So shout out to Steve. And then he sent me this voicemail where he basically wants you to explain to him how socialism is not a dream of the young who don't have children and are not working class. What an incredible question. Um, (laughs) Right off the bat, uh, much respect. I also yell at podcasts when I'm listening to them. (laughs) primarily what i do so thank you for sharing you are not alone 
I am not alone. Uh, <laughs> I sometimes can't stand it. Sometimes I have to turn them off. So totally get that. Um, so I genuinely love the fact that you're like, or like he's like, I don't ideologically <laughs> agree with you guys, but I'm going to keep listening to this show. <laughs> no, it's good. I mean, I do that with tons of shit, you know? Um, and you should do it because you take away things. You don't have to take away the whole thing. You build, you know, your little brick by brick, your little thing you stand on, your little ideological worldview, you know? So, I mean, I'm open to this question and I'm aware that I may not be right about the shit I'm talking about. So it's perfectly (laughs) fine. But I guess my take on this would be, you know, I've been to the Southwest. I've lived there. (laughs) I understand what's going on ideologically. I think there's a lot of... Latin people in Texas and in the Southwest who white people up here don't understand how American they are. Totally. And when I say American, I mean like... They believe in the project of America. Yeah. Starting a small yeah. business and taking yeah. you know, care of your family and stuff. Um, and I think I was talking about earlier where like a lot of times white people kind of are overtly racist and fetishizing people of color when they're like, you are sacred. You honor me. All this, you're talking, you know, you're talking to somebody who's just as corny and fucking normal as your own parents, yeah. you know, because the same shit applies to them. Um, <laughs> you know, this is a conversation I've fucking had with my own parents a bunch of times. And I think what's happening is that we live in fuck Man, there is a fucking listener who sent me a thing that I need to put in our group chat um, or our text or whatever that we need to talk about, which is a book. And I think if I'm paraphrasing something that's going on correctly, it's kind of about this thing where we have myths where we think that uh, a way of looking at things has been around a lot longer than it actually is, and it's been permanent, and it's actually rather recent. So this is a untrue example, but I think this was why this person sent me this. A while back, I read something that said that house cats had only been domesticated for like 100 years. I don't think it's true. I think someone dis- d- uh, <laughs> um, disproved it, and I think they were Egypt. right. Yeah. But there are things like that where you go, holy shit, I thought this was a fact of life, and it's actually mm-hmm. kind of recent. Capitalism is an example. Yep. The nuclear family is an example. Yeah. Individualism, all these things, but mm-hmm. they become hegemonic and they serve as the paradigms that you live in. Um, I was just watching that show Ozark, which is like just a nor it's a soap opera. It's just like the guy from Arrested Development made a show that's like <laughs> about if he was a meth dealer or some shit. I don't know, it's fucking boring. Um but uh, everything in that show is shot in like this blue lens. Everything looks mm-hmm. really fucking blue. It's just a certain type of photography. I was talking to Kate about that the other day, and we kind of got on this thing. We're like, we were talking about these these paradigms you live under and going, you couldn't explain to someone that like capitalism could not exist the same way you couldn't go to the Ozark TV show universe and explain to them that blue doesn't exist. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's that Zizek thing. He says, you know, people can end, imagine the end of the world before they can ad- imagine the end of capitalism, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that what's going on in America and a lot of places is that trick. People think this is the way it is because it's been this way for my immediate, um, you know, memory and probably the immediate memory of the person who came before me that taught me some stuff. But it's a, 
I think it's a trick because I think that that shit doesn't exist for people that are 30 anymore. So for a lot, the last few generations, there has been this like Alex P. Keaton kind of thing where people go like, you know, um, what is the saying? You're when you're young, if you're not a liberal, you don't have a heart. And if when you're old, if you're not a conservative, you don't have a brain brain. Yeah. That only makes sense during certain generations in this country where Mm -hmm. people got older and they got richer. (laughs) Yeah. That's not happening right now. The reason that there are way more like leftist people that are young is that people are starting to figure that out. But what's, I mean, there aren't that many of those though. What there are, are a lot more nihilists and people that have given up. And that's been a thing for a long time. Like, it's normal in this country that 50% of people don't vote or engage. And if yeah. they do, the people that do vote usually will tell you, I fucking hate Joe Biden and I have to vote for him. Or mm-hmm. that's just the way it is. You just kind of have to do this. So this cynicism extends to socialism, I believe. Yeah. Um, I do understand how it's a young person's game. And when you get a little bit older, especially if you become someone who's older who then has things at stake... Like, yeah, like a family and grandchildren and yeah. yeah, or a business or something like that. Yeah. Things line up where you kind of have to uh, not take personal risks or whatever. But my generation's not having children. <laughs> like, yeah, like we're, we're, you know, we're kind of um, we're kind of getting boxed out here. And the generation below mine are people that are like, not only not going to have children, they're just walking around. have with, air. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're just complete fucking maniacs. So. The other thing about this is the location, man. I've been to the Southwest and like, you know, there, there's a big libertarian streak down there. There's a big individualistic streak. And I think that it's, it's a thing that like, you will question this stuff when you get older and you have to go to the hospital and it costs a million (laughs) dollars. See, okay. So this is where... My answer. Like we're both young men. You're in your forties. I'm in my thirties. Neither of us have a million dollars in cancer bills yet. This is where my answer comes in because it's like, um, here's what's funny. It's like the American dream and the rhetoric and narrative around it. um, It's all based on this idea of like the individual amount of effort and skill and ability, right? Like you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and however much work you put into it that's what the results will be and it will be justice and you will fucking make it through right and what is extremely ironic about america is that they do not realize we do not realize that immigrants uh are the people who embody the american dream more than anyone else in america yeah is they're the people coming here believing this bullshit that like <laughs> if i work hard enough i can escape my class if i work hard enough my kids will live a better life than me if i work hard enough i can achieve a higher fucking level of power and safety and security and comfort Nobody believes this more than immigrants believe this, Jake. And, you know, as a first generation American, one of the 
difficulties and like conflicts that I have with my mother is that she is a person that believes this. She is a person that a hundred percent believes in the American dream in the sense of like, you come here and you work hard. And if you put in everything you need to put into it, justice will prevail and you will succeed. And I know enough about America to know that that is not true. Right. And the conflict I've had with my mother, who is not an American, <laughs> is me yelling at her, being like, that's a lie, that's a lie, recognize that they are actually just abusing your work ethic and abusing your belief in this fucking American dream to extract every ounce of labor from you at the minimum amount of fucking pay so that the classes that benefit from that labor can continue to benefit and the American narrative can continue as it is. And so, you know, to Steve, this is this is the problem that I have with my own people where, like, I want you to understand, like, um, we're not wrong about, like, work hard. Uh, I would say that Latinos have amongst the best work ethic of many peoples <laughs> in America, uh, where we are the people that really believe, like, man, we'll have five jobs and we will fucking show up and do the worst things and be the best and like not give a fuck. We, we will be there because we genuinely believe this is the way that we will change our lives and our lot and our position in life. But there has to be a point where we recognize where we are just being abused and where there is no um, reward coming at the end of this, right? And where there is an insufficient reward coming from this because no matter how hard you work and all the things that you're earning, that does not disprove the fact or the idea that you should have health care from your government or that your children should have equal opportunities for education or that everybody around you should be housed or <laughs> that everybody should have equal opportunities to vote without all the many ways that they are disenfranchising voters. So um, I think it's the difference between recognizing like aspirationally the system you want to be a part of and then recognizing that that system you want to be a part of is flawed and still has things that need to be fixed and you can still be on the side of we should fix this even as you try very hard to be a part of the broken system yeah i think that um this reminds me a lot of this thing that happened to me i used to be very I used to believe really hard in the system and then like, mm -hmm. you know, you could work your way out of stuff or whatever. And I remember one of my first jobs ever, I got a job as a dishwasher in this restaurant in Texas called Bill Miller barbecue, which is like a fast food mm -hmm. place. It was a brutal fucking job, but I was just like, I'm going to, you know, get out of my parents' house. I'm going to get out of these situations. I don't want to be in, you know, I got to um, work real hard. I thought $11 an hour was like, it was, I, I think I was making less than that, but I was like, yeah. Ooh, if I work hard, I can get that. Like that's going to be so much money. Right. Yeah. And, I remember th realizing I was an idiot because at one point this older black dude was showing me like how to fucking put the cap onto the barbecue sauce or some shit. And he went like, here's how you do, here's how you put the cap on the barbecue sauce, the Bill Miller way. And he said it with an <laughs> eye roll like that. And I was like, this person is wiser than me because they understand that this is fucking bullshit yes, and we're like, just like the system but also the system is bullshit yes. yeah yeah and yeah. so that's what i kind of want to say i guess this person is like i don't think i don't know if you are enthusiastic about the american system but i think that throughout the course of your life if i was a fucking gambling man 
I'd say you eventually will become not. But there are two different ways to become, like, to give up, to become kind of cynical about the American system. And one of those is to be what I am, which is like, you know, I might be a fucking, you know, ridiculous person who wants a revolution to happen or whatever, but I live in reality and I know it's probably not. I just, you know, I'm kind of, I'm aware that the only way to get that is to try really fucking hard for it and, you know, actually show up to stuff and and talk about it and stuff. Um, we'll We'll still probably end up not living in a very good world after everything I put into this, but I also, you know, it's just interesting to me or whatever. Um... You know, you can give up like me or you can give up like most people give up, which is eventually <laughs> rationalizing being on the other side of this fence. And ultimately, neither of these things will matter. <laughs> but that's the problem. I don't think that the option for people like this is giving up. I think the option is like um, it is actually closer to like what I would say lower class white Americans probably experience of like feeling like you put in this amount of work or time and then it's unfair for others to come in and gain some kind of benefit that's exactly what i'm describing though when i say give up i mean that is a form of giving up to me is blaming it on somebody else rather than being actively engaged in it and that is exactly what i mean the entirety of being a person who is into politics in america is like there are fringe people like us that are utopians but most of it whether you are a democrat or a republican is just being resentful of the other side the and other side, yeah. completely fixating on it in terms of like where you got and you know kind of like self-pitying about your situation totally. the thing is you don't need to self-pity because that's being mad at yourself you're mad at the fucking people that did this to you but then also don't be um you know, we use this term usually for comedy of like pulling the ladder up behind you, right? Yeah. But I think that's the same thing with class, dude. It's like, um, you know, uh, class mobility is not really a real thing, but we believe that it's a real thing. And then once we achieve any kind of marker of like, I'm doing slightly better than I was doing before or slightly better than the people who are like me, who are around me, um, what we have to do is avoid this fear of like, if anybody else gains this foothold, then I lose my foothold because that is the toxic characteristic of capitalism, right? That makes you think that if anybody else gains this advantage, I lose this advantage when that is not the reality, when it should be like, this is the level that everybody at minimum should be at. And just because I had to work so hard to get at this level doesn't mean then I need to turn around and police and like gatekeep and be like, did you work as hard as me to get to this level? No, you've worked hard enough to see that your fucking children should have health care. You've worked hard enough to see that they should be able to go to school and not be fucking penalized because you didn't make enough money. You should be able to right. see... All these things that just because you had to work so hard to get to a place where you had that privilege, don't turn around and act like everyone else should have to jump every hurdle that you jumped. When you clearly can tell in your mind, those hurdles should not exist for anyone. Right. The thing about this, right, is that what we never really talk about, we never put it into words when we're talking about yeah. capitalism and socialism, is that they're forms of government. But what it, what they really are, and what a government really is, are f- methods for distributing resources, right? Mm-hmm. And distributing value and shit like that. Yep. And 
capitalism has you tricked into thinking there is only one way to distribute resources and mm-hmm. that they are extremely scarce and that you need them. So you're always in crisis with your fellow man because the, what they're doing could somehow you know, affect the very tenuous, very precarious situation we're in in terms of distributing all the shit. But, I mean, if you look at this outside of that lens... Every time there's a crisis in America, you can look at America and you're like, we're the richest country in the fucking world. We have all the resources. We have the resources to fucking survive and fix this COVID thing without all of these people dying. But it's just not happening because, you know, th- there's like a vaccine that might happen. And what, they're arguing about who gets to fucking like patent it, not about who just distributes it and then everyone just has it. And uh, the, the, the person that you're bargaining against is your neighbor, whereas under socialism, the person you're bargaining against is like, you know, the, the, the government itself or something like that. Or like it's diffused a different way. Um, I don't know. And I mean... I, I agree 100%. I would I would say to Steve, who wrote to us, that, you know, you have to keep being mature in the sense of you have to provide for your family and you have to create a future and security for them. So you keep playing within the system, like the mature side of you, keep playing within the system, do the jobs that you do, save the money that you have to save, buy property, be a fucking capitalist, right? The way to stay young is to remember, even as you do all those things, you are not the gatekeeper for capitalism. The way to stay young is to be like demanding every step of the way that everything that you had to kill yourself to get should not be something that people should kill themselves to get. Don't, don't do this thing of like, I'm climbing the tower and when I am getting up to the top of the tower, now I'm demanding that nobody else who didn't work as hard should get here. Instead, you should get to the top of the tower and be like, fuck this. Everybody should be able to be up here. That's socialism. It's, it's, you should never just lay back on like, I was the one that earned this when it comes to things that are about basic survival and basic existence and basic happiness and justice, you know? It should be something that you want to distribute to everyone and that you shouldn't just want your kids to have it. You should want everyone around your kids to have it. Right, because there's not a scarcity. They sell you on this idea of like, well, there's only one one child from this neighborhood can go to the good school. Is it going to be yeah. yours or that other person? But socialism is looking at it and go, you're fucking lying. Like we could there send could all be a of good them. School for yeah. all of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, I hope that answers your question about how to make sense of socialism when you are trying to also succeed in capitalism. Yeah. And uh, you can honestly, you can be an actor that's still working in capitalism and just kind of push in this direction. Honestly, Fucking, we'll probably only see if we get it a mild form of social de- democratic change that gets yeah. us to where like we have slightly better shit or something. But it only happen if we do this. If, if we, we keep just pushing, yeah. If we just buy into this catastrophic shit where it's like, well, you have to just like it, whatever Joe Biden does, even when it's worse than Trump somehow. You know, uh, well, then we're that this, everything will just get worse, which is like. Not good, in my opinion. I don't know. <laughs> like worse, not good. Nobody likes that. 
<laughs> yeah. Okay. So I think we're going to wrap it up there because we're like in a, at an hour and a half. Um, like I said before, we're going to answer the rest of the ones that we didn't get to. I guess we can quickly say, let me see. We've got another one from Rory. We've got one from Kate. No, um, no, no. Uh, Louisa, I, I actually referenced some of this shit without, I wasn't looking at the document. I know, but then we'll get we'll go we'll deeper into it because Kate wrote to us a couple of times, so you didn't get all of them. Okay. And then um, Alon, Alon, I'm not sure how to say it, but he wrote to us about the stock market crash. We got to read that. Uh, Rabbit, somebody named Rabbit wrote to us about language and meaning. We'll write about that. Omar also wrote to us about Mrs. Maisel, and he's concerned about how white women are stealing Jewish valor on mrs mazel <laughs> so we will talk about that later uh fitzgerald keith wrote to us about ethnography. he thinks we should listen to that and r- talk about it uh, professor hess on twitter hates our intro mm. okay <laughs> he wants us to get a new intro so maybe he should learn how to make an intro and send yeah. it to us our, uh, <laughs> listen i the intro bothers me a little bit because it has my own voice in it, and it makes I, I like I, it's hard for it me to listen to. It makes you mad. That's the whole point. <laughs> but our intro was done by a listener who's a cool guy who I met at a show, and I do yes. not want to disparage his song because it's very cool that he made that and, for us. And who we compensated because we believe in compensating people for their labor. That's right. Uh, so we love it. I love it. I think it's a great intro. Shut up, Fitzgerald. <laughs> Uh, or no, sorry, that was Professor Hess. My bad. Um, we have some comments about my verbal tics. So many people annoyed about my verbal tics. I feel like <laughs> I, I did not say anything about do you understand me in the last two episodes, but who knows? Uh, lots of people want us to watch Mission Hill and do an episode about it. Dude, I would do that in an instant. I love that show. Okay, I've never seen it. I should check oh, it out. Oh, you would like it. Uh, we get some people, yeah, more from another different K. Mr. Maxwell wants to talk about Zoom comedy shows and possibly doing them on Second Life. Um, and then we have some other people who just have some compliments and weird comments. So we're going to do at least two or three more episodes for this mailbag shit. Um, and if you listening have thought of new things to write to us, write to us at whyyoumadpod at gmail.com. You can uh, DM the podcast at whyyoumadpod on Twitter. You could DM Jake and I separately, but that's less likely to make it onto the list because we will forget to add it. <laughs> um, anything else? Do you want to plug anything, Jake? Anything else you want to add? Anything else? Bonus uh, mad? Yeah. Any bonus mad you've got? If you're a Patreon subscriber, you already know all my shit. Yeah, exactly. We love you and appreciate you. Um, and we'll try to put these out at least once a month. But if we can increase the regularity, we'll try to do more. Um, thanks for everything. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.